Welcome to the Echo Church Podcast. Echo is a group of people in Cincinnati, Ohio, who love Jesus, love hanging out, and are navigating the ups and downs of our faith together. We're glad you're here. So, thinking about dinners, I was reading through some articles and I was trying to look for like what are those like high expectation events, you know, where everything is centered on who is invited and why they were chosen. And down my reading trail, I came across state dinners, presidential state dinners. I've never really thought about them a lot, so did some reading, saw some great photos we'll try to put up here in a minute. But a really great article I found in New York Times was by Zolan Cano Youngs, and he sums it up so nicely. Let me read you his words. Under the guise of pomp and pageantry, state visits are a chance for presidents to push foreign dignitaries to align with American interests. They can be a way to celebrate old ironclad alliances. And with high-profile guests, multi-course meals, and top-flight entertainment, they are a much-coveted invite in Washington. So celebrities get invited, and lavish meals are created, Everything's staged just so. But not every visiting dignitary to the United States gets a state dinner. So there's thoughts, there's feelings. We've got like, have I been snubbed? Or other people are thinking, why weren't they invited? The Center for Global Development looked at 40 years worth of state dinners. They looked from the Carter to Obama administrations and found 160 dinners and European and Latin American nations had the most invites. Sub-Saharan African and Southeastern Asian nations had the fewest. And a foreign leader can, you know, it can say something to them. You're communicating a message on whether you throw a big lavish occasion or not. So recently, controversial, was this summer India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi came this summer and his leadership has been critiqued because he says one thing, but he's treating some religious groups poorly. And so there were protests outside during the dinner. However, President Biden wanted to solidify because India is now the most populous country. And so it's like, hey, let's stay partners because China's around. So there was all of these strategies going on over a dinner. And it was fascinating to like look through photos of of dancing and how many times I saw Queen Elizabeth and how many different presidents she had dinners with. But things are strategic even internally. So for instance, Juliana Smoot, social secretary for President Obama, said she made sure to invite feuding majority and minority leaders of the Senate to the same table. So there were supposed to be conversations, and sometimes it's like a, let's not talk about politics tonight. We're supposed to talk about all the things that we have in common. Let's talk about sports. But she noted, you're supposed to say yes unless there's a death in the family. Like This is the thing that you want to be invited to no matter what side of the aisle you're on. So all of these messages kind of surround this moment. And so that's what I want to look at today, because this is not new. In the first century church, it still mattered who was invited and who was denied at your table. And today, we're going to read about, in the book of Galatians, a faux pas, where an early church leader 
was called out publicly by another church leader for who was and wasn't at the dinner table. We're going to be in Galatians 2 today if you want to turn in the blue Bibles in the pew or your devices to follow along. This is a series we're calling Jesus Redeems Our Stories because that's the message at the heart of this letter. The author, Paul, is trying to remind, gets a whole network of churches. It's not just one group, but all these people living in Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey, and they, are, they need some reminders of what's the heart of our beliefs. And some people have been trying to tell them, come in and tell them some other stories, and Paul keeps gearing it back around to, Jesus has redeemed your story. He's all we need. So, Here's a recap of where we are. This is after Jesus died. He rose. He went back to heaven. And the disciples were entrusted with the responsibility of beginning the church, defining what it is. What does it look like to gather and no longer be Jewish people in synagogues or Gentiles worshiping multiple gods? What if we zero in on Jesus and what does that mean? How do we, how do we formulate our gatherings? What does it look like to emulate Jesus's life? And so there was a lot of things going on and there was some debate. In Acts chapter 15, it just describes this whole assembly. And you can imagine, you see like denominational meetings that you've seen today where they all gather and they decide, what are we doing? So they gathered, and it was the Jewish Christian leaders, those who were disciples of Jesus, grew up Jewish, and now they're calling themselves Jesus followers. What does that mean? Well, they're like, well, we're, we're witnessing, we're sharing to all of these non-Jewish people, but half of them thought, well, they should become Jewish first and then Christian. Like, that's how we did it. They can learn the law. Then they can add Jesus in. It'll be great. And the other people are like, no, we're, we're done with that. <laughs> we don't have to do that anymore. We just, we just like Jesus. They can come as they are and just take Jesus only. So that's the big rift here. But the thing was that even the original important leaders of the church had some div division. They still hadn't figured out what they thought about this. They were still debating. So Paul is writing to his friends in Galatia to say, you're hearing a lot of stuff. I'm going to remind you the truth is you don't have to go back and do all the things that we did our, that our ancestors did. You have the freedom to just step right into Jesus because he has fulfilled the law for us. And in the coming weeks, we're going to dig into what that means because it's a lot. And Paul breaks it down in the coming chapters. But today, he's still laying out a situation that happened to him to try to give them perspective on why they were hearing different things from different leaders. So Paul says, there was a confrontation. Let me tell you what happened. Galatians verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 18, tells us, three years later, I went to Jerusalem to get to know Peter, and I stayed with him for 15 days. This gives us some backstory. Basically, Paul went from, I don't like Christians, I'm imprisoning them, I'm approving of their deaths, to coming to God, having a blinding light in his experience, and realizing that Jesus was the Son of God. And then he took time away, three years, it says. And we don't know if he spent that time with many people, just himself, a lot of prayer, a lot of going through probably his whole history, 
reading scripture, trying to figure out if Jesus is God, what does all this mean? How does the prophecy work? You know, like he just spent a lot of time spending three years figuring this out. And after those three years, Paul heads to visit Peter. And that's a, that's a humbling thing, right? Paul seems very confident if you read about him. He's like, I was a great Pharisee. I did this, I did that. So if he is going and kind of submitting himself toward Peter to say, Peter, you've lived with the guy for three years. You knew Jesus up close and personal. You've begun this ministry, and you're, you're the rock. You're the one people are looking to. And so they spend 15 days together, and I don't know. I don't know what they talked about. It'd be fascinating to know. But it's like this kind of a colleague thing. You know, if you're starting out in a job, you find a mentor, right? You find someone who's been there, done that, learned in their footsteps. You might not imitate them perfectly. Paul's not lifting up Peter as some superhero. He's just saying, hey, you've done this, let me check in with you. And even further, so then Paul starts his ministry, and we're going to find out for 14 years, he's starting churches, he's preaching, he's teaching, but then he hears all of this controversy, and he goes and checks back in, because he's like, do I have this right? And that's, again, it's a humbling assignment to be like, am, am I, I thought we were on the same page here, what is happening? Galatians chapter 2. Then 14 years later, I went back to Jerusalem again, this time with Barnabas, and Titus came along too. I went there because God revealed to me that I should go. When I was there, I met privately with those considered to be leaders of the church and shared with them the message I had been preaching to the Gentiles. I wanted to make sure that we were in agreement for fear that all my efforts had been wasted and I was running the race for nothing. And they supported me and did not even demand that my companion Titus be circumcised, though he was a Gentile. So there we go. Paul is preaching, and he's like checking back in and saying, okay, apostles, church starters, are we doing this in the same way? Yes. We're good? We're good. Okay, so who did he take with him? Paul said he brought a friend and teammate in ministry named Barnabas. We hear about the two of them. They spent probably those 14 years you know, going out together and ministering, and a guy named Titus, who seems to be an apprentice, and they were like, great, we're all good, we're cool, we've got this. Now, you might read this and think, this is an interesting way to introduce someone. Hi, this is Barnabas, we're Jewish, we're circumcised, here's my friend over here, Titus, he's not. That seems like personal. I don't know. Okay, so the message that Paul's actually giving here, remember there was the argument, right? Are you going to be Jewish first and then Christian? And so there's a lot of ways you can prove your Jewishness. You could follow the eating regulations, being kosher. You could observe the Sabbath. And you could be circumcised. And that is a permanent sign. So that is the one thing you could say, uh, I'm Jewish, here we go. Paul is trying to prove something here. He's saying, when I went and brought Titus with me, who is a Gentile, they didn't say you had to go through with the Jewish regulations. They were good with this. So Paul's trying to prove here that you guys receiving this letter, people are trying to tell you that you have to go back. But don't. Don't listen to them. The people in Jerusalem themselves approved and said, it's okay. This is a new day. And the Gentiles are welcomed into the kingdom of God. Verse 6. The leaders of the church had nothing to add to what I was preaching. 
By the way, their reputation as great leaders made no difference to me, for God has no favorites. Instead, they saw that God had given me the responsibility of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as he had given Peter the responsibility of preaching to the Jews. For the same God who worked through Peter as the apostle to the Jews also worked through me as the apostle to the Gentiles. So again, Paul keeps trying to build his case because as we said, after he hung out with the Galatians and left, other people came in and they're telling a whole different story. They're trying to convince these churches that they need to start following all the letter of the law again, all those regulations in the Old Testament. And so it's a long conversation because when someone influential comes in and says something, you, you listen, that's good. You gotta evaluate, right? I think we're, our culture is pretty good at not taking anything at face value, right? We're, we're critiquing, we're evaluating, we're, making, we're checking in. And so Paul is just like, don't listen, just the fact that they were, had this title. He's like, in God's church, titles and rank, there's, not, there's nothing there. Anyone telling you otherwise, that's, that's not, they don't have the point. The church leaders were all preaching Jesus. And so then, Paul tells them a story. He's like, I had to confront someone that you know and love that has been a role model for the entire church, but he Even he didn't get it right. Verse 11. This is Paul describing the situation. When Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So Paul, what he was living out, and he was good with, Peter had already been doing that. In fact, Peter lived with Jesus. He saw Jesus ate with the religious elite. Jesus ate with what everybody labeled as sinners, Jesus ate with people who had good and bad reputations. He ate with men. He ate in the home of women. He ate with the poor people. He ate with people who had a lot. And he broke bread and served food. We always talk about the, those loaves and the fishes miracles. Jesus did that for Jewish people. And then he traveled into a Gentile area and did the same miracle to show that Jesus served and cared for everyone. And Peter witnessed all of that. Peter got like the up close and personal in every bit of Jesus' ministry. N.T. Wright said, to have separate tables within the church is to spurn the generous love of the Messiah. Jesus was generous and Peter lived it out with him, learned right from the master. And yet, and yet something caused him to back up. Peter had an experience in Acts chapter 10 where God gave him like a vision and he, and he used food. It's my favorite love language. Uh, a sheet came down with all of these animals and God said, these are clean for you to eat now. And it was this metaphor to say, the Gentiles are welcomed in too. So Peter has had literal experience. He's had visions from God and he is set on knowing that everyone's invited into the kingdom. And he practiced it for a little bit until 
somebody else is looking. And that's hard. It's tricky when you know what someone else is, believes and it's slightly different than you or how they live out their faith. I don't know. We might change. In some ways, we might be doing it to protect other people. Like, I'll just pull a little bit of myself back. But sometimes, that sends a message. So the, the two problems with Peter's hypocrisy, why was this so devastating to Paul? Number one is, Peter was a respected leader in the church. And what he did mattered. And so, when people saw who he ate with, and then he shifted gears, and no longer sat on that side of the table. Well, then other people were like, Peter is trying to live like Jesus, so if we're going to imitate Jesus, then if Peter's doing this, that must be how the church should behave. Leaders have a lot on our shoulders, and when we mess up, it affects a lot of people. Case in point, I think Paul had a bit of personal devastation in here. This is a quote, even Barnabas was led astray. I mean, Paul and Peter might have been colleagues in ministry, but Barnabas, man, he was just like ride or die, BFF. They're together in this ministry, and they have served alongside each other for 14 years. And then he saw that even Barnabas was starting to think, hmm, maybe. That's got to hurt to the core. And so he's fired up. He's saying it to Peter. He's like, he's just calling him out and saying, like, what you do, other people are watching. And that's so hard to remember at times. But you know that same Peter? That Peter is the one that had fear and denied knowing Jesus. And so he's matured a lot over the years, and yet you can see, like, mm, some things we still struggle with. And it's not that Paul was perfect, but Paul's owning up to his stuff, and he's like, Peter, just, if you admit this, you're going to bring others along. So Paul continued, and he said these words to Peter, yet we know a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me, so I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all of its requirements so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body, trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. He's got real heavy there, right? Paul was attaching a giant meaning to Peter's dinner. He's saying, Peter, when you deny sitting with people made in God's image, saved by God's grace, Jesus' death, it's meaningless. Like you're leading people down a path toward thinking that it doesn't matter. That you have to work all over again for your salvation. That's like a lot. Peter's like, I'm just eating. <laughs> and now I'm like, I'm like taking away the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection. But just like those presidential state dinners, because Peter was who he was, 
then who he invited and who he denied mattered. Huge messages. And Paul's like, think about the path that you're leading people down. You don't even realize that this leads all the way over here. Paul's goal, sometimes he seems so direct, right? But I think his goal here is not to break apart. But he's like, Peter, stop now because you're creating little pockets. You're creating little silos. And we're supposed to be together. We're all invited to sit at the same table. And he was going to speak loud now because he wanted unity, not division. The world still feels pretty divided. And I don't know how many times we see people sitting together who believe very differently. Maybe that's why the state dinners are so distinct, because it's rare. But perhaps you've had experience sitting at tables with people, maybe who you love, but they don't see everything eye to eye as you do. So, how do we share tables with those who practice even their faith differently than we do? I think it's good that we look at what Paul did was to say, here's what we have in common. Let's start there. Paul still hung out with Peter. He had to get up close in order to have the conversation. Because there's something that happens when you sit at a table with people and you look them in the eye and they see you. And a trust builds there. Even when we want change for other people's lives, it happens up close, not yelling far away. That doesn't make as much of a difference. There's something that happens, and we get to be known too. We've all got things we can work on. There might be times where the table builds bridges and solidifies what unites us. But there might be times where we still have to like speak up. And maybe it's awkward. Maybe it's like, this is a person who's been in faith longer than I have. Why do I have to be the one talking? Why do I have to be, why is it on my shoulders to start the conversation? This is a mentor of mine, but they're doing something that feels hurtful. I think it just, we have to start with our motivation. Why do we speak up? If we're like, I just want to yell and vent and that feels good, I get it. <laughs> then don't, maybe don't invite them over yet. Wait till you're ready. Wait till the heart is unity. Wait till it's about the change, the result. Wait till you're ready to see their humanity and the good in them as well as what divides you. That's when you invite them over. Speaking godly truth as Paul did to Peter. We have to do so prayerfully. Don't let it be our words. Ask God, how do I say this hard thing? But also, if someone comes to you with a hard thing, listen. God might have some words for you as well. Peter was theoretically the one who was more mature in Christ. He knew Jesus longer. And yet, he got more concerned with other people's opinions for a moment. But he seems to have listened to Paul. And we can find that out in Acts 15. Because this happened after the Paul and Peter conversation. But there was a gathering where they finally decided, 
what are we going to say to Gentiles? We have to figure this out. We have to be on the same page. And so Paul and Barnabas made their case. Barnabas was back on track. And then Peter stood up. And he said, God knows people's hearts. He confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we are all saved the same way, by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Peter needed to be vocal in a very public way because he realized that the thing he did had been seen and known. And he's a good example too. That saying, sorry, saying, I had this wrong, trying to make amends by bringing other people around. Even after all those years in ministry, Peter had to check his own hypocrisy. So why do we keep inviting people to the table? Because of Peter. Because even old dogs learn new tricks, right? The people that we think, and we're like, well, that, they've already lived this long life. Yet it's amazing some conversations that I've had recently. When I, when I went, I got to visit some friends and speak to their church over the summer. And some of the people that came up to me were the least likely people that I thought would ever want to hear from a woman in church. And they were excited. And I couldn't judge based on where I'd known them from in the past, but to see the open hearts that they had. God's always doing something on people's hearts. And he might use us to speak into other people's lives. He can redeem new, immature, uncertain, not quite fully grasping Christians. And he can, redo, he can redeem mature, faithful, lifelong, should know better Christians. And we're going to fall into both categories at different times. But we keep inviting people because we believe that Jesus redeems our stories. And he might tug on our hearts to speak, and he might tug on our hearts to listen. But if we're gathered around the table, that's how we can do that. It's fitting that we end our service every week with a meal, and that the tables are off to the side. We're metaphorically all gathering together, right? But that's what Jesus did. He said right before he went to the cross, he spent time at a table, and he demonstrated that everyone is invited to the table and he said, when you do this, I need you to do it. I need you to eat this meal and remember me. And that takes togetherness, right? He didn't say go off and eat by yourselves. He's like, do this, do this. Not just the eating, not just the particular meal ingredients, but do this. What did Jesus do? He gathered people. Do this, gather and remember me together. Because our journeys are not alone. And I have a hard time forgiving on my own. I have a hard time asking forgiveness on my own. But when I have friends along the way, people who love me and want to care about my faith and my growth and not just appeasing, being nice in the moment, when we're real with each other, that's how we grow. That's how we, that's how we become like Jesus and mature in our faith. 
So let's gather at this table today. We've got friends who are going to serve us, and we're going to have bread, and we're going to have juice, and these are just tactile reminders to say Jesus came, and he died, and he rose for everyone. We're all invited to the table. So let's come together and share a meal and remember that we're invited. Think about those we want to invite next to come along with us. Will you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for setting an example for us, for teaching your followers how to invite people to the table. And thank you for forgiving us for the times when we don't. There are people we've ignored. There are people we've avoided. And we ask forgiveness for that. And we ask you to show us how to look more like you this week and who we talk to and who we have conversations with. Help us to see people created in your image with all the potential to live like you and grow. Thank you for giving us redemption and giving us hope that it can happen for all of us. Thank you for inviting us to your table. Amen. Thank you for the gift of your attention today. If you ever want to join Echo Church in person, we meet on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. You'll find us at 1301 East McMillan Street. That's in the Walnut Hills neighborhood of Cincinnati, Ohio, just up the street from our city's beautiful Eden Park. Find out more about us on our website, echochurch.org. Have a great week.